0: Money FM eighty nine point three, the best of Saturday mornings.
1: International news review. Welcome back to Money FM Saturday mornings and our international news review. Joining us today, Tricia Craig, senior lecturer in global affairs and vice president for engagement at Yale NUS College here in Singapore. Tricia, welcome back. Great to have you.
2: Thank you, and I'm really excited to be in the studio.
1: <laughs> it's, it, let me tell you, it's nice
0: to have people face to face again with us. I you mean, know, I was just thinking when the stinger played, I started to reach for my headphones. <laughs> I instinctively assumed, you know,
1: it was going to be virtual. Lovely it's, to have you here.
2: It looks a lot bigger online. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was. It was. It was a long. It was a long pandemic. So when we couldn't yeah. have people in here, so it's great to have you back. All right, we got to start out with the the top story uh, in our neighborhood, which is the the election uh, of of Anwar Ibrahim in Malaysia to prime minister. Um, 24 years he's been at it, going for this. He's been everything from uh, in government to out of government to in prison to out of prison. And now one of the most, uh, one of the most, um, uh, one of the biggest elections that they've had in a while. Give us your take on the, the overview of his successful run.
2: Yeah, this was a big week for Malaysian politics. As you said, uh, you know, a lot of people turned out, historic turnout. Uh, it was the election that was supposed to be uh, promising stability and some clarity, a country after, you know, three prime ministers in three years. Um, but it was anything but providing clarity, right? It, it We wound up with a hung parliament, the ringgit, the stock market fell, and we had five days of political chaos. Uh one of the things that's really interesting about it is that um no, the the big power in Malaysian politics sixty percent of the seats in twenty eighteen they fall to twelve percent mm. right so it's really a it's it's really a kind of yeah, uh, they've been a powerhouse forever for, right? forever yeah. right yeah. Um, but uh, and, and with the hung parliament right Anwar's PH is on a knife edge they finally got to. Uh, 115 seats, I think, out of the necessary 112, but they only picked up 82, right? So they've got to bring in coalition partners. This is going to make governing difficult.
0: Mm. Well, that was the point I was going to make there. You mentioned the coalition. So you've mentioned PH, uh, Barisan National, of course, and the Sarawak ruling party. They're not ruling out other coalitions who have to be uh, brought in at some point. It's such a fragmented political setup over there you know how much of a mandate is he going to have to get things done like you know he's talked about an anti-corruption agenda and so on
2: it's going to be tough, right? This was a really close election. Um, one of the things we saw was significant gains by the PAS, a sort of hardline uh, religious party. They gained actually the most seats of any party, uh, of any individual party. Malaysia, I think what we're seeing, like many countries, uh, especially in the West, is starting to polarize along ethnic um, religious grounds. Mm. That's not great for, you know, traditionally a wonderfully multicultural uh, Malaysia. Uh Anwar campaigned on getting rid of religious and racial discrimination, um, so we'll see if he's able to keep that going.
1: Trish, you know, the um, a, a couple of friends of mine commented to me just yesterday, Malaysians, how they, it was the first time they had voted ever. In a Malaysian election, and we know the numbers were were huge in, in this particular election. And these are these are engaged, educated, uh, you know Malaysians, right? And and, um, and and I was shocked by that. Uh, and you layer on top of that, um, Anwar Ibrahim says that he plans to do a vote of confidence on December the nineteenth. He's like, I'm just going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of the turnout of the of the excitement? That is being caused or created by Anwar Ibrahim's coming back into uh, the mainstream.
2: I think there's a couple of things going on. One is I think the anti-corruption agenda really plays to um, the Malaysians who are really sick and tired of mm. what they see, quite correctly, as corruption really holding the dynamism of the country back. Right? Mm. I mean the the whole one MDB scandal, huge. Black eye for Malaysia internationally. Um, and you know, and I think not only does Anwar come in with that kind of anti-corruption credentials, I think to some extent that's also what we're seeing with the PAS, right? They really pulled a lot of votes from Umno, and I think it's because they really also focused on an anti-corruption message. Hmm. The other thing to remember with this election and why we saw such great turnout is it's the first sort of youth election, right? This was the election after the voting age was lowered from 21 to 18. Oh. So we we got uh, millions more voters. Interesting, um, and, yeah. and they were really eager to participate in, you know, choosing Malaysia's future.
0: Well, the market seemed to agree with it. As you know, the ringgit yep. jumped by almost 2%, 1.8% against the U.S. dollar. The uh, stock market posted its strongest gains in, in more than two years. So the international markets see the chance for stability here. What do you think the region sees in Malaysia now?
2: I think, uh, like like the international markets, I think uh, Anwar brings that kind of credibility. You know, he was the finance minister in 97 with the Asian yeah. financial crisis. Right, yeah, he yeah. has re- very good cred uh, internationally. And I think what everybody is looking to see is, can he pull off uh, economic growth? We're going into a global recession Malaysia, like a lot of countries, has inflation, not as bad as some places, but still it's a huge concern for voters. One of the things I think that he's got to be able to do to reassure both the region and markets is – Look, Malaysia, one of, one of, it, one of the things it suffers from is low productivity, right? So he's got to make those kind of structural reforms. Also, he's got to get rid of corruption. Um, and, you know, we talked about the coalition. It's going to be hard carrying out a lot of those policies because he's going to have to make a wide group of pretty disparate bedfellows happy. Fascinating, wow. Fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, this is really going to be um, uh, this is going to really be an interesting time. I, I've, I've met and had lunch with Anwar Ibrahim t- twice on different occasions before the pandemic when he was in Singapore for the Foreign Correspondents Association here. Uh, he always struck me as, uh, actually, this goes back 10, 15 years, i got to be honest. He always struck me as being so intelligent, um, so able to talk literally about any topic. But it was my impression at the time that his heart was really in it for... Malaysia and for the Malaysian people, all of them, not just certain segments of it, yeah. and and then of course there was the sodomy trial and conviction and all that that came after that, um, and, and I, I personally I really feel like he's a he's going to be a great leader if he gets a chance if he to get the chance. Yeah, okay. I mean just
0: to add to that, in 2018, of course, he came here and gave that lecture, didn't he? Yes. Was, that, mm. was that when you met him? Yeah, talking about the importance of bilateral relations, and that's the photograph we've been seeing in the last day or two with him and uh, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong. So there is a shot, there is a chance that improved in bilateral relations as well, I would imagine,
2: Trish? Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that uh, he's somewhat seen as is pro-West, right? But I think he's been doing a good job since uh, since his appointment of talking about the need to really up ties, uh, not just maintain, but improve ties with China. I think that sort of speaks to the whole kind of regional dynamic of wanting to keep, as we see, you know, greater superpower competition, really wanting to sort of thread that needle very carefully between the U.S. and uh, and China in the region. And they have really good reason to do it. When you combine Hong Kong and China, that accounts for a quarter of Malaysia's international trade. That's a whole lot more than their trade with the wow. U.S.
1: Yeah. Um, Tris, let's move on. There are a lot, lot of stories that we got to cover today. And the next one is about the COP27 climate summit. Uh, many... The cop out. I'm probably with Greta Thunberg on this one. <laughs> many but. things were discussed. Many things were allegedly decided, uh, etc. And yet, there is a there is a decided lack of excitement and understanding about what's actually accomplished by this climate summit. At a moment in the Earth's history when we need definitive action. We didn't really get it, did we?
2: No, it, it was a, it was a disappointing and tough cop. They did reach one historic agreement. That's a loss and damage fund for the most vulnerable com- countries. So take the floods in Pakistan, for example, right? How do we help countries that are really severe, poor, um, vulnerable countries who are affected by climate change? So there's a financial assistance package. It's not a whole lot of money in the grand scheme of things. It's only $260 million. Um, We still don't know how it's going to be implemented. But it took the conference to go 40 hours over, you know, the end time to negotiate this. So to some extent, yes, we can look at that as an achievement. Um, there were a couple of other things. Uh, one of the things I was really pleased to see is that Brazil's president-elect, Lula, promised to have uh, zero deforestation in the Amazon by 2030. That's a huge step forward over his predecessor, Bolsonaro, under whom, you know, the Amazon was just being sort of mown down. Um, But it does highlight that these things depend very much on who's in power. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't call this a successful meeting. Uh, In the Paris Accords in 2015, they talked about not going over uh, two degrees Mm -hmm. Celsius in terms of global warming. Well, we know that's not that's that target is not sufficient, right? We really need to be at 1.5 degrees. Right. That's what last year's COP in uh, Glasgow uh, agreed to. This year, pe- countries were trying to sort of pull back on that. We didn't get any agreement on an emissions peak by 2025. So we get an agreement to help out the most vulnerable com- countries without actually doing anything to mitigate the conditions that's causing this. So what we're going to see is, um, you know, Closer breach of the uh, 1.5 degrees, that means more melting ice, more sea rise, more chaos.
0: And not only that, you know, this is where I sometimes think the more developed nations hit harder on the developing nations who are trying to do now what developed nations have already done. For example, at COP27... I read that there are many countries, particularly from Africa, Africa yep. who are negotiating new gas deals at a time when we should be doing the opposite. They're trying yeah. to negotiate right. lucrative gas deals at a time when we should be moving towards solar energy, green energy, and so on and so on. Is this going to be the, the, the breakdown in the end, Tricia, that, as you mentioned just now, it'll be the needs, the demands, and the wants of mm. individual countries and governments that will supersede any good intentions... On the global stage,
2: I think we are seeing some of that. As you mentioned, the African countries really feel like they have no choice. Right, they're going to buy the cheapest energy available because they need to. They need to develop. Uh, we've also one of the things that we saw at COP 27 is there were more lobbyists than ever before. Um, so, th- so we I think are going to have to. Um, one of the things that we're really going to have to look to is. Bilateral negotiations between the U.S. and China, the biggest emitters, yes. um, and it does seem like we're seeing a little bit of movement there, right? They had uh, sort of sh- shut those talks down. They're they're starting. They're starting again. Yeah,
1: I was talking to a friend at the uh, U.S. Embassy uh, this past week, and the, there's cautious optimism after the discussions that she and Biden had at, at the uh, in in Bali at the summit there last week or two weeks ago now, um, but it was it was phrased to me more like. There wasn't a blow-up, so that was a success. It it was the anti-success. It wasn't like so much great stuff came out of it. It's that, they they, A, they talked, and B, there was no blow-up after it. Uh, So I guess there's cautious optimism that maybe China and the U.S. can get back on track with some sort of discussion on climate mitigation. But, you know, I mean, there's got to be a whole lot of it happening, like, two years ago, right? Not today. Uh, Or 10, even. Or 20, (laughs) you know, for it to be meaningful. But anyway, uh, you know, we'll take whatever we can get, I guess, at this point. Um, Okay, let's move forward to uh, another topic that we were looking at, and that is in Hong Kong. A 90-year-old former (laughs) bishop and a a, a outspoken critic of uh, the Chinese Communist Party was found guilty on Friday relating to his role in a relief fund for Hong Kong's pro-democracy protest Mm -hmm. in 2019. A 90-year-old man is convicted. What is happening? Cardinal Joseph Zen and five others uh, were uh, were uh, found guilty.
2: So Cardinal Zen has really been a voice for human rights and pro democracy in Hong Kong. Uh, he and his uh, team—there's uh, some entertainers, lawyers, uh, human rights activists—they had. Um, a fund, basically, that was meant to help out the uh, the protesters uh, from the 2019 uh, riots uh, or the protests, help them with their legal fees and their medical bills. They raised around they raised over 30 million U.S. dollars in this fund, and it went to help thousands of protesters. They shut it. the The, the organizers shut it down when the government. Um, asked them who their funders were, um, some of whom were international, or many of whom were international, right, which is a big sort of red flag for um, for the Hong Kong government, um, and also who had been the recipients of their funds. So at that point, they shut it down. They're being charged under the society's ordinance. Uh, and this is the first time anybody's been convicted uh, on that. They're paying, I think, around a $700 fine or something like that. They have not been charged or they have not yet been charged under the national security law, which would be much worse because the penalties there are up to life imprisonment. Yeah. And there's some thought that they're not being charged under this harsher law because the Vatican and China are, re- or are re-upping their agreement about the appointment of bishops in China, meaning that the Chinese we believe, have the final say over who's appointed as a bishop. This agreement is, the the text of it is never made public. And so there's been a lot of criticism of the Vatican that they are sort of sacrificing uh, control over the church, basically, for political expediency.
0: I mean, more broadly, Trish, you mentioned he's a 90-year-old former bishop. Is this less about him, perhaps, and more about just setting down a marker from China against the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong.:
2: Absolutely. one of the things that um, one of the things that the Cardinal has been really emphatic about is that this is not a case of religious freedom, right It has nothing to do with whether you can practice your religion or not in Hong Kong or China. This is about political freedom, and it's a bellwether. Uh, and yes, I think that this is the first case that we've seen under this ordinance, and I don't think it's the last one that we'll see.
1: All right. And finally, the
0: World Cup. Yes, yes. everyone's favorite We topic. had a very animated uh, discussion about it off air with Trisha, who's not a big football fan. But then I would argue this World Cup is not particularly about football in yeah. many ways. It's about human rights issues. Yeah. Trisha, what do you make of it?
2: So this has been, uh, this has been the, the big question of the day. And I think a lot of people are asking... What is Qatar getting out of this, right? This was supposed to be their sort of debut on the world stage, a tiny country spending up to $300 billion on these games.
0: More than every other World Cup
2: combined,
0: combined.
2: Just a crazy amount of money, right? And one has to wonder if their PR team is happy with the publicity they're getting, right? Because there's so much about um, the human costs of building all these stadiums, the human cost of simply the their kind of work um conditions in general and then certainly things that we thought were going to be possible at the world cup are turning out not to be right there was the controversy over um uh, the one love armbands uh homosexuality is illegal in qatar so there were some i wouldn't say protests but su- shows of support uh, fifa shut those down uh, but then we but then we also see actual acts of courage um, on the part of, for example, the the Iranian team. Um, one of the you know, one of the. Things that's going on in the world in Iran are massive, massive protests right now going on, uh, because of the death of Masa Amini, yep. a young woman who in police, cu- was in police custody for wearing her hijab, uh, incorrectly. Um, she was, she was killed, uh, in police custody. Um, and so there, are, there are a lot of women's rights, human rights protests going on, uh, uh one of the one of the top players in Iran, he was on the national team in 2019. Uh, he until July was actually the captain of one of the big um, uh, Tehran-based teams, um, but he was he was ousted presumably because he's been a pretty critical um, voice. He was arrested this week uh, in in Iran. Presumably, this is a message that the Iranian government is sending to its own team. Uh, what we saw with the Iranian team is in the game bef- uh, before the game with England, they stood but did not sing the national anthem uh, words. Their captain in a press conference talked about supporting uh, women 's rights at home so this has this has turned into really um, a cause celeb, and I think the Iranian team is really being very courageous in their support for for rights. I
0: have to be honest, I get quite emotional listening to you. I I, I get goosebumps because I cannot stress enough how brave the Iranian players are being. Because to stand up before the global audience and not sing your national anthem in support of, as you mentioned, women's rights in Iran following the death of Amini. Huge. And as you said, I agree with you completely. I think them arresting that player is sending a message You've got to come home at some point. So to listen to, frankly speaking, Harry Kane and the English Football Association whine on about, but if we wore this armband, we might get a yellow card. Yes, but they face unimaginable consequences for their bravery. How do you see it playing out, Tricia? Do you think there'll be more protests as the World Cup continues, subtle or otherwise?
2: I think, unfortunately, I think we'll we'll see them winding down. You know, I mean, we talk, there's a lot of controversy about whether Qatar should hold this. First of all, it's, um, it's thrown the whole schedule off, um, because of, because of the heat during the summer, but also because of, because of human rights issues. Um, and yet, you know, 30 million tickets have been sold yes um and i think there's a question about certainly there's a question about sports washing um you know the sort of bringing in these big spectacles to sort of hide some of the things or or make it it sort of get off the front page human rights abuses and what we're seeing in a lot of Places is that it's increasingly authoritarian countries that are trying to hold these big sporting events, in part yeah. because they're so expensive to mount. Yes. I mean, look, Qatar built, I think it was eight new stadiums. You know, for a country Which of are a couple
0: eight white elephants, effectively. <laughs> exactly. You know,
2: in a in a in a democratic system with voter accountability, you couldn't. You no, could,
0: taxpayers would never allow. Would it. Would never allow yeah. it, right? Yeah. So I
2: think. So I think, unfortunately, this sort of nexus between. Um, you know, kind of suppressive politics and sports is something that we're going to continue yeah, to just, see. And
0: just to finish that off, uh, the American owners of both Liverpool and Manchester United have put their clubs up for sale. And leading the list to buy them are Saudi
1: Arabian <laughs> consortiums. <laughs> and, so, that's,
2: and that's because the Russian oligarchs are now prevented from buying. Them. Correct.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have to leave it there. But thanks so much, Tricia Craig, Senior Lecturer in Global Affairs and Vice President for Engagement at Yale NUS College. Appreciate your time today.